0: this week at Hope Point,
1: I had been arrested 17 times by the age of 17. Um, I was in and out of the Department of Juvenile Justice. Mental health tried to help me. Um, just a lot of people who tried to warn me about the destruction I was headed for. And I didn't have any regard for anyone really other than myself. It was, I wanted to get whatever I could out of life and I just said, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do today. and. Really, if people don't like it, they can get out of my way or, you know, can get ran over. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's
2: holy word. So, you know, for the past weeks, you are quite aware, uh, we've had our Bibles open to Ephesians chapter six, and we've had our eyes fixed on a warrior who's fully devoted to Jesus, a soldier whose goal in life is to defeat evil, not every evil in society because that would be impossible until Jesus Christ comes and does it himself. But that soldier is called to fight every evil that comes against his soul and every evil that would seek to wound his heart and damage his mind and destroy his faith. Throughout Ephesians 6, we have seen big powerful words like stand firm and uh, resist evil and be strong. So when men are doing just that, when they're strengthened uh, by the Lord and they are standing on the truth of Scripture and when they are resisting evil, they are exactly what God intends a man to look like. But when a man shrinks back from obedience to God, when men live for themselves, when they evade responsibility, when they're controlled by their passions, and when they follow the false promises of sin, they don't look like men. In fact, their lives are not used to spread good, but their lives are used to spread evil. It's interesting when we look at this warrior in Ephesians chapter 6, we said there were 11 verses dedicated to spiritual warfare in that chapter. How interesting it is that it comes on the heels of 16 verses where God says, this is what the family should look like. So right after he said, this is what the family looks like, then you have, hey, get ready. War is coming. In those 16 verses, God says this four times. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, strengthen your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, teach your children. The goal of evil is to persuade husbands to not love their wives. For wives, to not strengthen their husbands. For children, to not obey their parents, and for fathers to not instruct their children. God has designed every culture in history to be built upon strong families. Families, again, composed of loving husbands, encouraging wives, obedient children, and instructive fathers. And when any of those four are taken away, the family begins to break down. And when the family breaks apart, culture breaks apart. Peace is replaced by chaos and joy is replaced by despair. A nation is strong only when its families are strong. And the only thing that can make a family strong is when a man uses all his strength to love his wife, and when a wife uses all her strength to encourage her husband, and when a child uses all of their strength to obey their parents, and when a father uses all of his strength to instruct his children. So we obviously live in a time where evil has done great damage families, great damage to culture, to the point that many people can say, I don't even have a concept at all of family. And that's why we rejoice in the landmark verse of Psalm 68, 6, where the Bible says, God makes a home for the lonely, and he leads prisoners to a place of singing. Jesus Christ is the ultimate family builder He left heaven as the Son of God to come to earth for one mission, and that is to obey every impulse and dictate of his Father in heaven. The reason Christ came to earth was to make a way for people to be freed from sin and to be adopted as sons and daughters in the family of God. Like a husband who would give up everything to rescue his wife, Jesus Christ sacrificed his body on a cross that he might free his bride the church from the dominion of darkness and transfer her his people into the kingdom of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ who rose from the grave and lives forever god rebuilds broken lives and brings men and women into his family forever the bible says in 2 corinthians 5:17 if anyone is in christ he's a new creation Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Again, today, I want you to hear that message through the story of Kerry Sanders and the ministry of Jumpstart. Kerry is a man who followed the way of sin into the path of destruction. And when all earthly hope was lost, he turned to Christ and discovered that God really does set the lonely in families. And not only is Carrie himself now in the family of God, God has given him a beautiful earthly family, a wife to love as Christ loved the church, and children to teach about the God who saved their father's life.
1: My name's Carrie Sanders, and I live about a half a mile from North Greenville University. Some know that as Tigerville, South Carolina, but those from that area know it as the Dark Corner. I've always really loved this picture of me and my brother. We were double trouble. I guess we didn't believe in purchasing the pictures, I don't know, but we've got the we've got the proof that was sent home. Yeah, my mom cut most of our hair, you can see, look at this one right here. You can tell that, look at that home cut. You can tell I was going to be trouble right there. <laughs> uh, I always played on my brother's team so I would have been a seven-year-old playing with nine-year-olds and I got thrown out of a game for running over the catcher. My family was in an uproar about that because the catcher was about twice my size and was blocking the baseline. I was two years younger but I was faster than all of them so maybe I had to be. Good memories. I had an idyllic childhood in a lot of ways. Uh, We had a great time growing up in Tigerville, there was plenty of... um, places to roam and things to get into, just having fun. We had some land to ride bikes and play in the woods and play in the creek and have a lot of great memories playing outdoors with my siblings. Um, We just weren't active in church and didn't have kind of that perspective. And so as I entered my adolescent years, I had a lot of insecurities, um, really for a lot of invalid reasons, but they were real to me. Um, And kind of in the dark corner up there, um, you can get respect Uh, by beating other kids up and selling drugs and, you know, that's kind of the dark-corner culture, that rough-tumble kind of thing. When my brother and I was about 11 or 12, we started hanging out with our next-door neighbor, son, who lived next door to my mom. My mom didn't know it, and we didn't know it at the time, but he had um, been a criminal in another state and had been to prison and actually escaped and was on the run for a while. and so me and my brother saw he had cool cars over there all the time. So we started hanging out over there, and he picked up pretty quickly that me and my brother liked smoking marijuana and, and drinking alcohol, and, um, and that we were up for mischief. And so he began um, teaching us how to do little things at first, like break into a car, and then he began teaching us how to bypass an alarm system, um, how to get into simple kind of safes, and you know how to scope out a business to tell if it's a good place for a robbery how to scope out a home and see if it's a good place to do a breaking and entering. We did a lot of terrible things, um, from fighting, stealing, robbing people at gunpoint, um, you know, all kinds of things that um, we deserved to end up in prison for. As an adolescent, a lot of my friends' parents would have described me really as a rebel without a cause, a menace to society, and all of us would be better off if they would just finally lock that kid up and throw away the key. He has no hope for a future, and he's dangerous to himself and to everyone around him. I had been arrested 17 times by the age of 17. Um, I was in and out of the Department of Juvenile Justice. Mental health tried to help me. Um, Just a lot of people who tried to warn me about the destruction I was headed for, and I didn't have any regard for anyone really other than myself. It was, I wanted to get whatever I could out of life and I just said, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do today and really, if people don't like it, they can get out of my way or, you know, can get ran over. I think for my 17th birthday, the state let me out of a juvenile facility and um, told me if I ever got in trouble again that I would be coming back to adult facility. Um, but I didn't really care. I had no regard really for anyone, you know, other than me. Um, and what I wanted. Um, and three months later, we planned a robbery, and me and my brother were gonna go in and um, and tie him up and burn him with a propane torch to make him open a safe. And um, while I was in the home with him, um, tra- waiting on at gunpoint, I had him held at gunpoint and was waiting on my brother to come in and tie him up. And um, he didn't cooperate, and I shot him uh, from about three feet with a hollow point bullet and we left, we left him for dead. Um, and so we really had no regard for anyone other than ourselves. You know, the next morning we got up and looked in the paper and we saw that the man hadn't died um, and that they really had no good description of suspects. But it weighed on us a little bit um, because we thought he may know who we were. And so kind of always looking over our shoulder and. Wondering, was he about to get some payback? And um, one morning, I got in my truck and just fled to Canada. Um, I had no intention on where I was going. I just started driving and, and didn't stop. And people often ask me, like, what were you thinking? And I just have to honestly say, we weren't thinking. You know, we had gotten to a point in life where we were more living like animals than rational human beings was later apprehended in Canada um, as an international fugitive from justice and extradited back to Greenville by the Department of Homeland Security. And so as I got back to the Greenville County Detention Center, I met with um, my public defender and he said, you know, kids, you've done some terrible things um, and you probably deserve a life sentence, um, but maybe you'll get 25 years. I said, I'm not gonna do 25 years. He said, well, how much do you want to bet? And um, he didn't know the only thing I was thinking about was suicide. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I was waiting on the guards to make their final rounds so I could hang myself. Um, And I wanted to make sure I got that right because I'd gotten so many other things wrong. I mean, I just remember having the thought, you know, God, if, if God is real, then what? And so I just remember saying, God, if you're real, I want to know. And I remembered that someone had given me a Bible, and I just took it and put it under my flimsy little prison mattress. And I got it out and began flipping through it there at two in the morning. And there was an article titled, How to Have a New Life. Um, And what it was was a presentation of the gospel. It was how God had created the world good, uh, but this disease, sin had entered in, and humanity had rebelled against God, and now there was a curse upon the whole world, um, and that nothing could fix it except a healthy relationship with God. And that made sense to me, because I had tried to turn over a new leaf, and had felt my own powerlessness um, to make any lasting change in my life. And I just said, God, if you'll have me, if you can forgive me, I will serve you forever the joy and the peace I experienced in that moment. um, um, I can still say to this day, it was a supernatural feeling, um, knowing that even though I may have to pay the price in the court of man, I had been forgiven in the court that ultimately was gonna matter. You know, I remember going into court and I wasn't thinking about I hope I can tell the judge that I've changed and all of those things, hopefully to mitigate my own sentence. I just knew that I did some terrible things and deserved to experience justice. And so I still remember the judge striking his gavel and sentencing us to 45 years. And It was some time later before I realized that he had shown mercy in that sentence uh, that we would have to serve nine years and they could be released but if I so much as got a misdemeanor I would have to return and finish out that 35-year sentence.
3: Department of Corrections is a hard place for anyone so South Carolina is usually 16-17,000 inmates in about 20 different prisons with a lot of different situations of people who are there so as a believer Trying to live out your beliefs in prison and maintaining those is very difficult. It was an
1: entire really mind shift and worldview shift to learn to live for God in an environment where most people were not doing that, Um, and in a culture where it was frowned upon to live as a believer.
3: Anytime you get a large group of people put together in bad conditions, it brings out most of the time the worst of people as well. So part of that nature is to the weak tend to get picked on by the stronger. And in a lot of the worldly views, someone who identifies as a believer is in that group of being weak. And so they become a natural target as well. There
1: was this young man who kept coming to my cell asking questions about the Bible. And I knew he was a gang member, but I didn't really know how deep he was in with the gang. I mean I tried to answer his questions and pretty soon he was ready to pray and receive the gospel. And I shared the gospel with him, and he repented of his sin and placed his faith in Christ and become a believer. Um, well, the next day, his gang leader pulled me to the side, and he said, Hey, Kerry, listen, you stay away from him, or we're going to kill you. And um, I said, Hey, man, he's been coming to talk to me. I haven't, you know, I haven't tried to push anything on anyone. Um, and later that day, that young man came and talked to me, and he said, Hey, I'm going to get out of the gang, even if they kill me. And that night, that gang leader, as we were going into our cells for the night, he said, hey, Carrie, you dead man in the morning. Go ahead and say your last prayers. And um, the next morning, they didn't let us out. At the, you know, they didn't come by and unlock our cells. Um, and about 30 minutes later, the state's red team, which was their SWAT team pretty much, came in um, and searched every cell. And every gang member in that dorm that was a part of that gang was taking the lockup for having a cell phone. Ended up and served nine years in the South Carolina Department of Corrections before being released. And I was in a program called Jumpstart. Jumpstart is a faith-based
0: prisoner reentry program that assists men and women that's returning back to our community from incarceration. Well, I, I wouldn't call this a prison ministry. It's, it's
1: way beyond that. They're, they not only know Christ, but they're growing together in a Bible study in the middle of a house that was provided for them when they got out of prison. I mean,
0: Jumpstart does literally everything for you. Not only do they help you find a job, they carry you to and fro from that job. Uh, They carry you to every appointment that you have. They carry you to these appointments. What place will you know what they call the uh, halfway houses and things like? What place does that, you know? I've worked in every role within Jumpstart, from housing manager to driving, transportation. Um, but my heart was always with employment. And the reason being is that I had a brother that was incarcerated with me. He had been working for an employer for about eight years since he had been clean from heroin. I'll never forget his last words when he stopped by my room, you know, that day that he was leaving. He said, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check on your family for you. I'll you your letter and let you know. So I got a letter from him and um, The letter was just telling me about that uh, they didn't hold his job for him like they had promised. And he was just, I could tell just through the letter, still have the letter to this day, just that he was in a distressed mode. I mean, he was 49 at the time, had been to prison four times, and um, just, you know, how in the world am I going to start over at this age with this criminal record? If my current employee wouldn't hire me back, who in the world would? I got a call to go up to the chaplain's office. So I went up to the chaplain's office. I knew it was time, close to time for me to get out, and I just thought I was going to sign some release paperwork and all that stuff, but they gave me a phone number. It was my brother's phone number. So when I called, his sister-in-law answered the phone, and she told me that they had found my brother dead um, from a drug overdose. When I got that word and just walking back to my dorm, just trying to process, like, golly, he just, I just seen him three weeks ago, you know what I mean? And I got back to my dorm, and that letter was on my bed from my brother explaining what all had happened since he had gotten out with the job and everything. It was at that moment that God touched me in the depths of my heart that something that he's calling me to do in the arena of prison ministry and first and foremost it was to educate employers.
1: At the end of the day we can only really trust and rely on God and we as people, the people at Jumpstart, we're not making anyone change. We're not um, helping them with this transformation because we can't transform anyone. We can just guide them to the person who can do that and that is the Father. Nationally the rate of recidivism which really measures how what percentage of people go back to prison after release that percentage is 70% nationally jumpstart over the past 10 years has served over 3500 men and women who have been released their success rate is 96% the gospel works you know that not only saves south carolina taxpayers over 12 million dollars every single year It's putting mothers and fathers back involved in the lives of their children and breaking some of those generational cycles of poverty and crime. It's providing employees for local employers who are willing to give people a second opportunity. And it's creating safer communities because people aren't committing crimes out of desperation because they don't have anywhere to work or to live. There's a different
0: level of belief that I have in those that come through the program, because I can identify with their highs and their lows, you know what I mean? And I can understand the darkest days, you know, on a level that
1: somebody else may not. I had about a year to go on on my nine-year sentence, and I was participating in Jumpstart as an inside leader, helping others work their way through the class, and I met a volunteer by the name of Richard Ingram.
4: I walked in, and it, the room was full, which was unusual. And the guy leading it, I thought, was probably another volunteer. But it turned out to be Kerry. He was that good. <laughs> and he said, I think you need to go to university when you get
1: out, you're pretty bright. And I said, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, look at Look at where I've ended up and he said, no, I, I really think that's what God's leading me to tell you. He said, will you pray about it? And I said, yeah, I'll pray about it, um, but I don't think it's a possibility. I went back to my dorm, to my prison cell block, and um, talked to you know, the other people in there. And I was like, hey, you think I can go to college? And they're like, kid, you're a fool, right? You're not going to school. You know, you're going to have to hope you can get a job. And so I went back the next week, and he said, Carrie, have you been praying about it? And I said, no sir, I didn't wanna to lie to him. And he said, I've been praying about it and I think you need to go to North Greenville University.
4: Because I know a little bit about them and I think they're special and it's just right for you. And I just, all I could do was laugh at
1: him. I said, Mr. Ingram, you don't know this, but I have a lifetime trespassing ban from North Greenville University. I'm not going to school there and I don't think you're hearing from God. He said, the other week here in class, you taught us about that with God, all things are possible. He said, son, I have to ask you, do you really believe that or is that just talk to you? And so for the next year while I was incarcerated, um, I prepared for the, he sent me an SAT book. And you know, I had never seen a book that size. It looked like a phone book with all these triangles and
4: math problems. And I was like, there is no way. And we were in the admissions officer's office and I never will forget, he looked at the paper and he looked up at Carrie and he said, Carrie, you made better on the SAT than I did.
1: I get the impression that in high school he didn't care much about school, but he is God-given academic abilities and the ability to, to push himself to work hard and that's why he's been successful but he's so humble with it. He's like, yeah, I'm only getting 1,400. It's like, only? Like, 1,400 would have put me in a full ride, dude. I had no idea at that time that in the background, some people that had heard my story had went to the leadership at North Greenville and said, hey, this is really preposterous for us to even ask you this, but this kid who has a lifetime trespassing ban
4: has had a radical life change. He was treated like family, truly.
1: You initially get that like uneasiness of like, oh man, this is like, this is a a bad guy. Like, this is not somebody I want to be around. And then to see the change now, it's it's incredible. Some of the leadership there said, you know, you probably will have a hard time getting a job and going to school. What if you work in our IT department? And I said, you know, I've been gone a decade. Like, the, they didn't have really laptops and cell phones and all of that when I went to prison. I don't know anything about technology. I said, well, we're going to let you work with Paul Garrett, the director of IT, and you just do whatever he needs you to do. And so I met with Paul, and I have to tell you, I was super nervous to share my story with him. Um, And I shared my story with him, and I remember him reaching into his desk, and he took out a key. He said, you know, I know you used to bust the windows out up here with a hammer and steal things. He said, I don't need you using your hammer to get in anywhere, so you're going to need this master key.
3: I didn't have a problem with that at all. There was nothing about about him that caused any reservation uh, whatsoever uh, with providing him that access.
4: Mr. you're not going to believe this. He said, I've got a key to every door in this place. I said, Carrie, that is very special. Very special. They respect you.
3: Every time Carrie walked into the room, we didn't see someone who had committed a felony, who had been in prison for 10 years. Uh, What we saw was a brother in Christ that was uh, working on his degree in Christian ministry that planned to serve. Uh, full-time in ministry. Uh, that's what we saw. We're
1: trying to make transformational leaders for church and society and this is somebody whose life has been transformed and is now impacting society and I almost like look up to him inspired by all the different things that he's doing.
3: If he said he was going to do something, he would do it. He was totally and completely dependable. You know, often at Jumpstart,
1: when we began the program, um, we're sharing the gospel with dozens of people who aren't believers, but they're coming to the program because they've heard of the success and they think it's going to help them. And a lot of times as we kick off the program, I get to share my story. And when I share my story, I come from Ephesians chapter 2. But I was dead in my transgressions and sins, and um, was driven by passion and lust and the culture around me. And then in verse 4, it talks about, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Uh, Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved. And I think that encapsulates my story pretty well. I was completely dead to myself. I was dead to those around me. I didn't care about anything or anyone. Uh, But as an atheist on the verge of suicide, um, God reached down and rescued me and made me Anybody
0: that's, that's a Christian has had some moment in their life where some type of adversity came to where they was able to see God for who he truly is. Whether on a big scale of going to prison or whether you was about to lose your house and God made a way.
3: You can't help but be around him and understand,
4: like, he is different. When I hear his past, it's like you're talking about somebody else. He has become a new man in Christ. There's no doubt about that. Um, I love Carrie Sanders. While a lot of times I would prefer to
1: just keep my story to myself and not share it regularly, um, I can't help but brag on what God has done in hopes that it will help others see what a magnificent God He is. God is God from the highest level
0: to the most minute thing, but until we able just to be able to see Him for even the small things, that's when we know, man, God able,
1: you know? God able. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org We hope you can join
2: us again next week.